0: Um, last week we looked at the first 18 verses of chapter one and Paul's introduction, uh, where he told us that he has big news that he's not ashamed of about what it means to be right with God. And that big news, he also calls good news, which is also what we call the gospel. And so this letter is about the gospel, um, But Paul says he's not ashamed of it. If it's good news, why would he have any reason to be ashamed of it? Well, I think as soon as we start reading tonight, you might see one of the reasons. Uh, So let me uh, pray for us, and then let's go ahead and read here in Romans 1. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. We thank you that you've brought us together. We thank you that you've given us your word. As it is your word, Father, as we ask every week, we just ask that you would speak to us. That by Your Spirit, You would give us ears to hear and hearts to believe the truth. Would You give us Your grace and Your mercy? Would You make that so? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would read with me together, let us read Romans 1, starting in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God will endure forever. (laughs) So you remember last week, we saw that that Paul had good news, but he wanted to make sure he told us he wasn't ashamed of it. (laughs) And if you were wondering why that might be, I'm assuming maybe verse 18 of chapter 1 answers that pretty quickly for you. I wonder have you ever rewatched a movie? Maybe a favorite movie, maybe a movie that you, in your head, esteem as like a great movie, only to realize when rewatching that movie that there's only actually a, a certain few parts that you really like about the movie, and that everything else, like, either isn't good or just you don't really care. Um, for me, that would be the Star Wars episode two, the, the most recent Star Wars, the second one. I could not tell you anything about the plot of that movie, how it begins, how the story progresses. But I remember two, point, two points of that movie and I will watch that movie anytime it's on just to get to those two parts. The first is when the clone troopers show up for the first time and go down into the battle. And as a little kid who grew up watching stormtroopers, you're like, oh, that's awesome, right? And then after that, Yoda having a lightsaber fight with uh, Count Dooku, and it's freaking Yoda having a lightsaber fight with (laughs) Count Dooku. His name's Dooku, and that's weird, but anyway, little kid and me leaps for joy every time I see that part. But again, I couldn't tell you anything about the plot of that movie, but I could tell you a lot about those two parts of that movie. I mentioned that, and maybe you, you have no idea what I'm talking about, but maybe you can sympathize with me. I think we do the exact same thing with the bible or with the gospel when it comes to what paul talks about here the wrath of god paul is going to unleash this good news right truth after truth about this good news and we know that and we know that the good news is there and we know that the wrath part is there and that it's part of the story but we really just kind of want to get past it so we can get to the good stuff am i right so like when you re- resolve your New Year's resolution, I'm going to read the Bible this year. I'm going to start in Romans. You start reading the first handful of verses, you're like, "Yes," and then you get to verse 18, and you're like, "I think I'm going to skip ahead a couple of chapters of the good stuff, right? We'd much rather get to the action scenes of the gospel, the good stuff, the life changing, like the Spirit is at work in me stuff. You know, the stuff I can tweet about when I do my quiet time. No shame. Anyway, again, Romans is a masterpiece about the good news of Jesus. About a righteousness that is not earned, it's revealed. And Paul is going to unleash in this letter this good news with beautiful and glorious and life changing truth after truth after truth. But first, what comes for us tonight is the inconvenient truth. And the inconvenient truth is that the wrath of God is revealed. Last week, he told us that in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. And now, in the next breath, he says the wrath of God is revealed. And it's not just needless filler. It's not just something to get to the good stuff. It's actually foundational for us to understand why the good news is good news. I think it's interesting to note that no other figure in the Bible spoke more about the wrath of God than Jesus. Interesting. Jesus himself talked about God's wrath more than any other figure in the Bible. So remember, keep, please keep this in mind. And, and I heard another pastor say this in a sermon, and I think I want to say it. Do one of two things for me after tonight. Either come back next week, and keep coming back, or at least keep reading through Romans. Okay? That's what I want to encourage you with. But remember, Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel, and in the next breath we start to understand why he'd say that. Because... He talks about something we're uncomfortable with, God's wrath. Okay? I think uh, i got three questions there for you, um, and that's how I'm just going to approach it. The what and the why and the how. The what, the why, and the how. The first thing, well, what is God's wrath? What is it? If if Paul's going to mention it and he's going to spend all these verses about it, what is God's wrath? And I wonder, I really like preparing this and thinking about Paul talks about he's not ashamed of the gospel and then thinking my illustration about wanting to skim past it and then me myself today thinking man I wonder if I could just skip to Romans 3 tonight that would be awesome I wonder what you think of when you hear a call to worship like we did earlier right I don't know how many are paying attention to that talking about like indignation and pursuing enemies but also in the same breath saying God is good and then I wonder what you hear when we read and you hear the wrath of God is revealed. It's the first thing Paul wants to say after his opening 17 verses. For, perhaps maybe you think of the, like, okay, we're just a bunch of fundamentalists, I guess. Like hellfire and brimstone, here it comes. Or you think of like protest signs, right, at either an LGBT rally or something, any, any number of things where somebody says, you know, welcome to hell or have fun in hell or something. Or maybe guilt comes to mind. Maybe the way that you've heard this your whole life was, God is really upset with you. What are you going to do about it? Or, perhaps maybe even on the flip side of that, you think, well, my God is love. And I know that wrath stuff's there, but the New Testament God doesn't really want us to think about this wrath thing. But, Paul says, the wrath of God is revealed. And again, Jesus more than any other figure in the Bible, uh, speaks more about the wrath of God than anyone. And that's weird because when you look at Jesus' life and ministry, it's the people that, to our eyes, seemed the most damnable that flock to Jesus and feel safest around Him. And Jesus accepts them with open arms. And then it's the people who, to our eyes, seem like they are most assured of avoiding wrath. Those are the ones that hate Jesus. And those are also the ones that Jesus speaks the most scathingly about. So what do we do with this wrath thing, okay? No matter your conception of wrath or whether you've even thought about it, it's uncomfortable. (laughs) It's just uncomfortable. And I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, First is this. I think the first reason talking about the wrath of God makes us uncomfortable is because for us... We do. If you've been church or been around the Bible, you you know like the good news. Like okay, God is love. Like He accepts me as I am, and He wants to help me and heal me and restore me and make me holy. Right. So like, how does that? Comp- how does how does His wrath square with that? And I think the first reason that makes us uncomfortable is because we think in the ideas of human anger and human wrath. Wrath just means anger, right? The anger of God is revealed. He's displeased is what Paul is saying. He's displeased with a bunch of things that Paul talks about in this chapter. And we we don't like that. It makes us uncomfortable because we think in terms, we cannot help but think in terms of human anger. What is our experience with human anger, whether as perpetrators of anger or victims of it, right? Our experience of anger is usually that it's irrational. Uncontrollable, vengeful, malicious, right? And then we get these images of God, especially in the Old Testament. Like sometimes the Old Testament writers, instead of saying God was angry, they'll say things like, his nostrils burned. And you're like, what does that mean? (laughs) Uh, I don't know what to do with that. Um, And we don't like that. And we don't like that God. And there's also many other reasons, not only our human experience, but also like... People have esteemed that kind of anger. People have esteemed human-type anger to God and have used it to push their own pet causes. Like, God hates fags and stuff like that. I and mean, there's an ample list of things that you could say like that. But here it is. Remember this. If you're uncomfortable about wrath because, uh, wrath and God because of what you understand wrath to mean, remember, we are made in God's image, not the other way around. Right? We're made in his image. He is not made in our image. Because you think about it, no one, virtually no one has any problem talking about like kind of this nebulous idea of like, yeah, I mean, I could believe in a God of love. Like everybody wants to at least, yeah, I mean, I could I could believe in a God of love. Yet no one ever, it never crosses anybody's mind to be worried about, well, if God is love, does that make him foolish and impulsive and, immoral and make immoral decisions like we see other people in love do? Right? We never make that. Connection, the kind of things that we do in the name of love, right? In the same way that God's love is without those things, His anger is also without those things with which we um, express anger sinfully. Um, his wrath is never whimsical; it's never self-indulgent; it's never. He's never irritable in the sense that we are. In other words, His anger is always righteous. Now, does that mean it's easy for us to understand? No. But he is righteous, therefore his anger must be. Let's continue. The second way that I think we're uncomfortable is that we kind of, we misunderstand or we don't see how his wrath or anger can fit with his goodness and love. How can those be compatible? Are they not incompatible? And first, like the first part of uh, chapter 1, right, Paul's telling us about this good loving God who has good news for us. And then the next thing he wants to tell us is how he's angry. About how people are displeasing him. I'm like, well, how does that make sense? How does that go together? But I really think the only thing we need to do is look at our own experience. Anger is not the opposite of love. Love actually usually elicits anger and a righteous anger. Uh, Came across this quote by a lady named Rebecca Pippert. And I love it. She says that love isn't the opposite of anger. That actually love and anger can go in hand in hand. And this is how she says it. She says, love detests what destroys the beloved. Love detests what destroys the beloved. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. I love that. So, like, we usually think of two extremes. We put God in one of two extremes, which we do with everything because of stinking social media. Another sermon for another day. But we put him in two, one of two camps. Either he's just like us and flies off the handle, therefore he's not good and I don't want a God like that. Or he's kind of this God that's just kind of above anger. He can just kind of repress it. He, does, it's, it, he can repress negative emotions. Therefore, we're saying, like, the only way he can be good is if he doesn't have any anger. Right? Or he could be the God that presents himself in Scripture as God. Therefore, his wrath is his holy, perfect, righteous, necessary, and active hostility against evil. There was a lot of words in that. Let me say it again. If he is God, and if he's the God of the Bible, then his wrath is holy, Perfect, righteous, and necessary, and an active hostility towards evil. And again, plenty of social justice hashtags uh, that I could use or list and we could talk about to drive this home about how we actually do get this. But let me just give you a personal example. I'd like to believe, I really would, that I've always been sensitive to racial issues um, especially growing up in the south, especially growing up in a predominantly black city and realizing, wow, I'm in a predominantly black city, but I never come in contact with black people. I'd like to believe that at an early age, I've been sensitive to racial issues and um, have grown in, hopefully, um, how to seek understanding in my ignorance in so many ways, right? So my personal example is this. How much more so do you think that is the case for me now? that I've had a black 15-month-old living in my house for a year? And how much more so do you think that will be the case for me when in three weeks he legally and fully becomes my son? I would like to believe I've always hated racism. (laughs) But you have to believe I have an active hostility towards it even more now. Right? Why? Because love detests that which destroys the beloved. That's it. They're not incompatible. One actually demands the other. What is God's wrath? That's the best I think we can do at this point. Let's keep going. Why, though? Okay, it is revealed. We know, kind of got an idea now what it is. But why is God's wrath revealed? Well, there's two overarching reasons here that we're working with. And the first one really makes us uncomfortable. And it's this: we deserve it. The over, one of the overarching things we get in these verses that Paul's getting at is we deserve it. And that makes us uncomfortable because what that means is God's wrath is personal. It's toward us, Right? It's against us. It's against us because of our godlessness and unrighteousness, which are results of us suppressing the truth. Now, what truth is that? Well, look at verses 19 through 21. The truth that we are actively suppressing, according to Paul, in verses 19 through 21, is that whether we admit it or not, we know there is a God, but our natural bent is to refuse to acknowledge Him as God. Why or how? Because he's made it plain. In other words, like your mama used to say, you know better, right? Um, or we should know better. Therefore, we justly deserve his wrath and anger. Now, on on one level, I think we could just understand this logically. I'm not even saying believe in a Christian God or the biblical God. Just just imagine for a second that we granted the truth that there was a God who created all things. Okay? Therefore, us and everything that exists owes our entire existence to that God. Therefore, we owe our allegiance to Him as God, whether we know it or not. But you see, Paul takes it to a whole other level. God didn't just create and hope that we knew Him. What Paul says and what the rest of Scripture says is that God's original intent from the beginning was to be known. He created us so that we could know Him. You read just at the beginning of the Bible, we are created into His image. We are created after His likeness. We can see bits of Him in each other, right? He has put eternity in our hearts, the author of Ecclesiastes says. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. God wants to be known. God has made Himself known. So what the Bible tells us over and over again is God is not hiding In fact, it's actually us. We're the ones hiding. Why? Well, as we're going to see the rest of this chapter, the reason that we're hiding, the reason that we suppress the truth, is because if we acknowledge God as God, then we're acknowledging that we're not in control. If we acknowledge God as God, then we are admitting that we are not and that we cannot be in control we suppress that truth we choose that truth John 3:19 3 verses after the most famous bible verse there is i think John 3:16 we read this and this is the judgment that the light has come into the world but people loved the darkness rather than the light Because their works were evil. We suppress the truth. We deserve God's displeasure. Because we suppress the truth. But the second thing. So the first thing is we deserve it because we suppress the truth. But not only do we suppress the truth. The second thing is we worship things instead of him. We worship things instead of him. So not only do we suppress the truth. But we exchange the truth. Not only do we deny the truth, but we choose other things to replace that truth. Look at what Paul says. There's this repeated refrain. Verse 23, verse 25, verse 26. That we have exchanged. Verse 23, the glory of the infinite God for finite images of finite things. Verse 25, we've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Because we've worshipped the creature instead of the creator. Verse 26, we've exchanged the natural for the unnatural. So here it is, overarching theme here. You only have two options, according to Paul. As As beings who have been created by a personal God, we either acknowledge God as God and worship Him as such, or we will worship something else. Please catch that. We either acknowledge God as God or, and worship him as such, or we will worship something else. Regardless, you will worship something. Whether you're religious or not religious, you worship something. Why is that? Tim Keller, just is a book for you if you've never heard of it or want to read it. Uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit God's really uh, draws us out well but one thing that he gets at in in introing his book is this we were made we were created to live for something we were created to live for something we all have something that captures our imagination We all have something that we give our highest allegiances to. That we rest our deepest hopes in. And whatever that thing or things may be, whatever we do, uh, whatever it is that we do that for, that has become an ultimate something to us. And whatever is our ultimate something, that is what we worship. We give it our praise, lip service, and we give it our service. Everything we do is for it. We worship something. And we can, e- we can even, y'all, come back next week. We can even do it with good things. Because guess who he's going to go after next week? The religious. And he's going to say, you're no different. What he's really going to say is, we're no different. So come back. Anyway, we're made to live for something. And we can even do this with good things. But that's just it. God never intended for us to make things ultimate. We were created for him To be our ultimate because he created us for himself. The key, so here it is to sum this point up. The key to halting our suppression of the truth is by recognizing our idolatry. Idolatry is not about carved images. Idolatry has existed as that kind of thing before, but that's not all it's about. Idolatry is about what we worship, it can be your school, it can be your homework. It can be where you're from, it can be your race, it can be your country, it can be your political party, it can be your president, or who you want to be, go on and on. We all worship something. The key to halting our suppression of the truth is identifying our idolatry. How do we do that? What are the non-negotiables in your life? At the end of the day, what is your bottom line that it is non-negotiable? What is it that when you are down, you go to it by default? That you rest in by default. That you say, I'm okay because that. What is it? Where does your mind go automatically when it is not preoccupied with other things? What is the first thing your mind drifts towards? What is the thing your mind is preoccupied with most of the time? What causes your biggest emotional mood swings? What is it that you get defensive whenever anyone asks you about it? Ooh, we could spend a whole night on that. Are you even willing to entertain the questions? Are you even willing to entertain the questions? It angers God that we do do this. This is what Paul is telling us. That it angers God when we do this. Why? Because he's insecure? No, he has everything. He owns, he has everything. Everything comes from him. He's not insecure. Is he selfish? No, he already has everything doesn't need to be selfish. It angers God that we do this. Why? Because he knows the destruction that it causes. Because the opposite of love is not anger. It's indifference. And he is not indifferent because he is good and he is loving. And so he reveals his anger to us. It's why it's revealed. Let's end with this. how, How is it revealed? So Paul says, so God is going to smite thee with fire and thunder and lightning. No, um, it's not what he says, actually. Another refrain that we see, verse 24, verse 26, verse 28. And so he gave them up. And so he gave them up. And so he gave them up. Now don't misread that because of the English. It's not that God says, okay, I'm done, I give up. No. He gives them up. It's active. He gives over. He hands us over. Those of us who insist on suppressing the truth and insist on worshiping other things, He gives us up what? To what? To what we really want. If we insist... On getting it our way. God says, have it your way. That's how his wrath is revealed. And note the connection. They exchanged, so he gave them up. They exchanged, so he gave them up. They exchanged, so he gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them them over. Now the elephant in the room, and again... Spent all day wondering, how can I just not talk about this? Elephant in the room, obviously, is that Paul pretty clearly mentions homosexuality here. And so I just want to make a few comments because I can't just skip over it and act like it's not there. And the first thing I want to say is this. I am always willing to talk to you, any of you, about anything. So you can disagree with everything I'm about to say. It won't threaten me. It's fine. Because guess what? What I'm about to say is not a popular view anymore. I know that, but two. This right here is the longest continuous passage in the Bible on homosexuality, and I mention that because relative to other subjects in the Bible, it's not very long. Okay, but it was just as much a hot button issue in Paul's day as it is today. Okay, it was just as common in Paul's day as it is today. So, I want just a two thing, couple things about what Paul is. And is not saying. One, he's not saying that homosexuality is the manifestation of unbelief. You don't believe in God, you will be homosexual. I have no doubt that somebody has tried to make that application. That's not what Paul's saying. But what he is saying, which is consistent with the rest of the Bible, is that homosexual practices, like idolatry, which is the larger point, is contrary to God's design. Contrary to God's design, we looked at the design at length last semester as we looked at relationships. And here's the thing that I think is also worth noting. No one denies, no matter where they fall on the opinion on this issue of whether the Bible is accepting or not, no one denies that whenever the Bible explicitly talks about it, that it does so in the negative. No one can deny that because it's written there in the negative. It's the historic teaching and interpretation of of the Bible. Now, this is not an exposition on homosexuality. Go a few steps further with me to get a holistic picture of the passage. Look at verse 24. Verse 24, Paul begins the description of what we are given over to if we insist on having it our way. My translation, verse 24, says the lusts of their hearts. Now, here, here's the thing. We hear the word lust and we immediately think sexual, right? But actually, and, and that's definitely the direction Paul ends up going, but the word itself um, actually literally just means strong desire. And it's used in multiple other contexts in the Bible, not in sexual context. It literally means uber desire or super desire or hyper desire. What it means is he gives us over to inordinate desires. Wanting things more than we should want them. He gives us over to it. I don't know if you're a Harry Potter fan or not, but the first book, Harry Potter, The Sorcerer's Stone. Uh, Harry, in this secret room in Hogwarts, finds a mirror. It's called uh, The Mirror Era said, And he loves this mirror. And he keeps going back to it. And he keeps sneaking back to it when nobody knows night after night after night why. Because when he looks into the mirror, he sees his parents who have been dead His whole life, right? And towards the end of the movie, he goes back one last time to look at his parents. And he's so caught up in the moment of going and sitting before that mirror that he doesn't even realize that Dumbledore is in the room. And Dumbledore says, are you back again, Harry? And Dumbledore goes on to explain the mirror. He says, I'll give you a hint of what it shows you. And he says this. The happiest man on earth would look into this mirror and see only himself. And Harry immediately gets it. So it shows us what we want or whatever we want. To which Dumbledore says, I love this. Yes and no. It shows us nothing more or less than the deepest and most desperate desires of our hearts. But remember, this mirror gives us neither knowledge or truth. Men have wasted away in front of it and even gone mad. It does not do well to dwell on dreams and forget to live. If you're keeping count, Ara said is just desire backwards. You see, this is what Dumbledore's getting at. We go to our idols for control, because our idols are what we think we'd so desperately want and need. And we go to them to fill that desperation and that need. We seek control in our idols to control or secure our own pleasure, our own security, our own affirmation, our own success, our own comfort, you name it. But what Paul is showing us is that the inherent nature of idolatry is that our idols control us. Whatever you worship is what you serve. So therefore, whatever you worship is what you serve, which is what controls you. We go to our idols to serve us, but what happens is we serve them because we're given over to them. Again, Rebecca Pippert says, whatever controls us is our Lord. Seek power, then you're controlled by power. If you seek acceptance, you're controlled by acceptance. We do not control ourselves. We're controlled by the Lords of our lives. It's slavery. It's bondage. It's addiction to our own desires. Again, because Paul mentions it, I bring up Rosaria Butterfield. If you've never heard of her, I suggest her books to you, Un- Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. Um, she was a tenured professor of English and feminist studies at Syracuse and a practicing lesbian. And by an amazing train of events of which she calls a train wreck, she was converted. She became a Christian. And her book's about that. And she says this, when she became a Christian, she said this. I didn't understand why homosexuality was a sin, why something—the particular manifestation of same-gender love—was wrong in and of itself. And I'd always thought that God's judgment upon Sodom clearly singled out and targeted homosexuality. And I believed that God's judgment against Sodom exemplified the fiercest of God's judgments. And so then she goes on to recount how she then studied. She wanted to study. Like I'm a Christian now, so I guess I have to deal with this. And she says that what she found in Ezekiel 16 amazed her. Listen to this. In Ezekiel, God's people are in exile because he puts them there because they're under his judgment. And listen to what he says. As I live, declares the Lord, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. So catch what God is saying. Israel, my people, your sins are worse than Sodom. It's the first thing he says. Now listen to this. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride... Excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. If you were going to make a list of the sins of Sodom, you think it would have sounded like that? So Butterfield notes the progression of sin. It begins with pride. And she asks the question, why have we elevated sexuality to this core root issue? And I would say because it's so easy. And she says this. We have too narrow a focus about sexuality's purview. Sexuality isn't about what we do in bed. It encompasses a whole range of needs, demands, and desires. Sexuality is more a symptom of our life's condition than a cause. More a consequence than an origin. Again, I draw that out to say this. Paul is drawing out for us the same thing here the root foundation of this passage is not homosexuality, not even sexuality. The root is the whole passage flows from our natural bent to refuse and acknowledge God as God. That is the main point. And let me just say this, and I wish I had more time, but we don't. i got to wrap this up. The church, we Christians not done a good job of dealing with sexuality, we don't know how to talk about it. And the way that we talk about it, we make it seem like an ultimate issue. We dealt with this last semester. That if you feel ashamed of your sexuality, in whatever way, heterosexuality or homosexuality, Christians have made you to believe that the Bible says there's no hope for you. That's not what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying... The whole passage flows from the fact that our natural bent is to refuse to acknowledge God as God. And so we make this exchange. We put our own God in the place of the truth that God has revealed about himself. Look at the list at 29, the verses 29 through 31. What Paul is saying is if you make that exchange, the truth about God for a lie, it plays out in a million ways. And which... Who of us would say that we're innocent when it comes to that list? Everything on that list. Let me end with this. What in the world am I supposed to do with this passage? This is heavy. It's dark. <laughs> Where is the light? First, remember the connection. The connection is verses 16 and 17 when, God, when Paul says that there is good news about a revealed righteousness. And then he says, and God's wrath has been revealed. So the main point will be good news. This, admittedly, is bad news. So it must mean that the answer to this passage, because there is good news of a revealed righteousness, the answer to this passage cannot be that, hey, you've screwed up, you better try harder. That cannot be the answer. It can't be. So where's the good news? If it's about a revealed righteousness, then it's about how to be right with God. But if there's revealed wrath, it means that we're wrong with God. So it must mean that this wrath has to be dealt with. Who's going to deal with it? Well, there's a key in this passage if you read the rest of Romans. There's another place in the book of Romans where, God used, where Paul, I keep saying God when I mean to say Paul. Paul uses the exact same phrase, he gave him up. Romans chapter 8, verse 33. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. For us all, the way to escape God's wrath, God's anger, God's displeasure is to believe in the one that He gave up for us. I know this is heavy, but that's good news. Let's pray. Father, we don't know what to do with verses like this. They've been mishandled. They've been misunderstood. They've been a source of great shame or even offense. Father, I just pray that you would use these words to afflict us where we're comfortable but that you would also use what they point us to, our need of good news and the existence of it, to comfort us where we're afflicted. We know that you can do this because you've promised to. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.